The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Some of you may have heard this news about 10 years back. Uh, there was this fresco of Jesus uh, wearing a crown of thorns. Uh, it's uh, adorned a church wall in a very small uh, village in Spain. And over the years, because of the moisture that collected on this wall, the painting began to deteriorate to a very worrisome level until the point that it was in really desperate need of restoration. And then in 2012, an 85-year-old parishioner, a local woman, who was an amateur painter and thought herself to be somewhat of an uh, uh, art restorer herself named uh, Cecilia Jimenez, tried to restore the painting herself. And to everyone's horror, this was the result of her, quote, restoration. <laughs> um, at first, the local townspeople uh, thought that the painting had been vandalized <laughs> until Jimenez came forward to take credit for this botched restoration job. And almost overnight, uh, this ruined painting became a global joke, a meme. Uh, and with many of them saying that Jesus now kind of looked like a monkey or something, you know. Uh, in a really strange twist, though, this failed restoration attempt turned out to be an unexpected blessing for this village because now hundreds of thousands of people came to see this painting and to view it themselves because they just couldn't believe it. And then they would buy uh, souvenirs with the image of that painting uh, to, to keep as a memory. Well, I share this story because I wonder if we aren't guilty of the same thing at times. Distorting the real Jesus found in the Bible by the way that we try to improve his image based on our own ideas of what we think Jesus was like or maybe even what we wish he was like. Uh, and rather than leaving it up to our own opinions and biases, I think it's best to look at how Jesus revealed himself to us. What is it that Jesus wanted us to know about his essential character, his heart, his mission? Um, we are taking another pause from the Sermon on the Mount series as we do for every Easter and Christmas. We don't just do one message, but we try to do a, a brief series for Lent and for Advent. And so for this Lent season, we're going to be, uh, we call this series the I Am series that really focuses on these seven statements of Jesus where he said, I am. And they're all found in the Gospel of John. Um, these seven I Am statements are the following. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the lastly, I am the vine. And each one of these statements about himself is just packed with so much meaning 
Um, and we, it would be awesome if we cover all seven of them. But for this, because we don't have that kind of time, and we really uh, just are limited to a series of four messages, uh, we're only going to focus on four of them for this Lent season. And so today, I'm going to unpack the statement of Jesus that I am the light of the world. And then next week, Pastor Lester will uh, walk through Jesus' identity as the bread of life. And then the week after that, I will explore Christ's statement that I am the good shepherd. And then finally, on our Easter celebration, we will look at Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay? So let's begin with the statement itself found in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I want to begin by saying that this imagery of light is very rich throughout the Bible. And when you study this theme of light in Scripture from Old Testament into New Testament, what you discover is that it actually represents a lot of different things, from guidance to exposing evil to casting out darkness to, to providing a sense of assurance and safety to comfort and joy and celebration and even representing salvation itself. And then what you discover also is that light is a major theme in the Gospel of John. And it also carries a lot of meanings in that Gospel. Uh, it's actually a very interesting contrast between darkness and light that occurs in the fourth Gospel. And so you find that light in the Gospel of John represents truth, or righteousness, or witness, or life, guidance, exposing the darkness, opportunity to do work, and on and on. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the question is, what did he mean by that? Are we supposed to take all of these different meanings found in the Bible and in the Gospel of John and just basically put them all together and then say, oh, well, Jesus meant all of those things? Well, I'm not sure that that's the right way to approach it. Jesus may have had more than one meaning in mind when he said that he was the light of the world, but I think it's really important. This is something that I'm really pressing on the people who are taking Understanding the Bible seminar right now. But this idea that when you're not sure what something means, then what you have to do is read it in its context. What are the surrounding verses or passages that then help to explain, well, what was the intention of what was being said here? And so the question is, what is the context of this statement I am the light of the world. Well, if you just go back uh, a little bit, in John chapter 6, Jesus has experienced a setback in his ministry. People have become confused and offended by his teaching. And as a result, some people who were once following him no longer follow him. They stop becoming his disciples. On top of that, the religious leaders have made their decision about Jesus and felt he is not one of us. And now they're even plotting to capture him and put him to death. And so as a result of all this, Jesus actually leaves Jerusalem. He leaves Judea, and he returns back to his home area of Galilee, where he begins to do ministry there, performing miracles. And it's in this setting when Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Judea, uh, to, to Galilee, 
that he gets into this interesting conversation with his biological brothers. And it's captured at the beginning of John chapter 7 in verse 1 through 11. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time is not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? So the brothers of Jesus are bothered that he's performing all of these miracles in their hometown in Galilee, this area that they all grew up in, in this obscure countryside area. And they feel like he is squandering an opportunity to dramatically expand his ministry, to gain recognition and fame and have a much bigger audience. He's saying, you're playing to the wrong crowd here. Why are you here in the countryside? You should be in Jerusalem where all the action is. And on top of that, there was this festival of tabernacles that was just about to take place, where literally hundreds of thousands of people would descend on Jerusalem all together. And so his brothers were saying, that's where you got to be so that you could gain recognition. And Jesus refuses to go, not because he is afraid to die, because he's afraid that people are trying to kill him, but he says, my time has not yet come. This isn't yet time for me to lay down my life. And so he sends his brothers to Jerusalem for the festival of tabernacles without him. Interestingly, though, Jesus does end up going to Jerusalem to attend the festival, but he does it in secret so that no one knows he's there. Let me say a word about this festival of tabernacles because it's really important to what happens. The festival of tabernacles is one of the major religious festivals that the Israelites were commanded to observe every year according to the law of Moses. It's in fact one of the three pilgrimage festivals in the law of Moses, which meant that the Israelites were commanded for these three festivals that they had to go to the designated place, which eventually became Jerusalem where the temple was, in order to observe that holiday. They had to, in other words, make pilgrimage to celebrate. It's found right there in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the festival of the unleavened bread, which is Passover. And then at the festival of weeks. And then lastly, the festival of tabernacles, which is also in Hebrew known as Sukkot. Okay? Which is just the Hebrew word for tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. 
Now, what historians tell us is that the Sukkot, or the festival of tabernacles, was the most popular of all of these annual festivals. The Jews loved it the most. It was the biggest celebration. And during that week-long celebration, the Jews would build, construct these booths or tabernacles or tents, and they would live in them for that week as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them during their years in the wilderness when they lived in tents. And observant Jews, as you can see in that picture right there, actually continue to do this to the very present day. They will build these little tabernacles and they'll live in them for a week or maybe not necessarily sleep in them, but at least spend much time in them throughout the day eating and, and celebrating and worshiping in these booths. Well, uh, light was actually a really important part of this festival of tabernacles in Jesus' day. Not so much today, but back then, light was really important. Because what would happen is this. On the first night of that week of celebration, there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple. And what these Jews would do is they would put these four gigantic candelabra in each corner of the court of women in the temple, and they would light it. And it would burn so brightly that the entire city of Jerusalem would be lit up by these four huge fires that burned in the temple. And these lights would represent the Shekinah glory, the glory of God's presence among his people. And because the Festival of Tabernacles pointed back to the wilderness wanderings of the desert, the Jews would have clearly seen the connection between these four huge burning lamps and the pillar of fire that guided God's people in that desert when they were led by Moses wandering in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 to 22. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so although the wilderness was an incredibly terrifying and dangerous place, the presence of that pillar of fire would have been this amazing comfort to the Israelites, assuring them that God was with them and that as long as they followed that fire into the darkness of that night in the desert, they knew that they were never lost. They knew that they were never alone. And what would happen back in the days of Jesus is that when the priests would light these great lamps, it would trigger this eruption of the crowd that had gathered at the temple and it would usher in a moment of singing and dancing as the Levites played their musical instruments. And then what was so amazing was that that singing and dancing would go the entire night. They would pull an all-nighter, literally dancing and singing until the dawn. And you can just imagine what an amazing experience that must have been. An all-night party singing and dancing in the temple as these huge fires burned that represented the presence of God among his people, just as he did in the desert with the days of Moses. It is in this 
context that Jesus spoke these famous words. You can imagine dawn breaking as the morning light enters the temple. And by then, you can kind of assume that the lamps were burning out. They must have been smoldering with the smell of smoke filling the air. And in John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see the connection now? The connection between that pillar of fire in the desert, in the wilderness, and with what Jesus is saying right there in that moment is unmistakable. What Jesus is saying is that just as the Israelites followed that pillar of fire in the darkness of the desert night, Jesus was claiming, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me in the same way, that light will guide you wherever you walk. You will never walk in darkness because my light will shine the way for you. It's clear from the way that the religious leaders responded to Jesus' claim to be the light of the world that they were really bothered by what he said. Because if you start reading from verse 13 to 18, look at their response. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now, it's a little confusing what's going on here. But in the days of Jesus, the rabbis, in order to support their teaching, would very commonly quote a rabbi that was greater than them. And that was what would give authority to their teaching is saying, it's not my words, but look at what so-and-so says. It's kind of like how I quote Dallas Willard all the time, right? Like, don't believe me, look at what Willard says, right? That's what the rabbis were doing. They were quoting people all the time. And what bothered the religious leaders of Jesus' day so much is, how come you don't quote any of the other rabbis, Jesus? Why do, your, why do you just throw your words out there as if they have authority on their own? Because they don't. Unless you can tell us which rabbi you're citing, your words have no authority. And Jesus says, I don't need to quote another rabbi. My words hold an authority by themselves. And he says, and if you need a witness to validate my words, the only witness I will provide for you is God, my Father, who sent me. So you can understand how offended these religious rabbis, these leaders were at these words of Jesus. Basically what Jesus was saying was this. I am the greatest among the teachers so that I don't need to quote any other teachers. My word stands on its own. I need to quote nobody. 
And Jesus continues to debate with these religious leaders, and he keeps saying, you have no clue where I came from. You have no idea who I am, and that's why you're arguing with me like this. And the Pharisees grow increasingly offended by this authority and knowledge that Jesus is claiming above all the other rabbis until finally you get to verse 53 in chapter 8 of John. And it says, Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. At this point in the debate, these religious leaders realize that Jesus is claiming to be far more than the greatest among the teachers. But he is now claiming to be God himself. The Pharisees would have immediately recognized this I am statement that Jesus is making about himself. It would have immediately brought to mind that day when Moses was in the desert at that burning bush and God revealed himself as the great I am. Now Jesus is saying, I am the I am. By claiming to be the light of the world, what Jesus is saying is, that light that burned all night last night to which you were dancing because of the presence of God was with you. The glory of that light was actually pointing to me. I am that light. Jesus is saying, I am the Shekinah glory that filled the temple in the days of your forefathers. I am that pillar of fire that led your ancestors through the wilderness all of those years. That was me. Jesus was saying, I am that God. The God you worship and I are one. And that is blasphemy in the ears of the Jews to claim deity. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him to death because they thought that that was heresy to claim that he was God. And so what we're going to discover through each of these I am statements that Jesus is going to make is that in essence these are claims to be nothing less than God himself. Say, I am God who has come among you to be with you. But I would also say this. By connecting it to this tabernacle feast and the pillar of fire in the wilderness, I think Jesus is also saying something deeper than simply that he is God. 
He is saying that my coming into this world represents God who is now dwelling among you to be with you in your moments of darkness and need. That's why John's gospel begins with this description of Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase that is translated in our English Bibles as made his dwelling among us literally means he tabernacled with us or he pitched his tent with us. You almost wonder if John was looking back to that day in the Feast of Tabernacles when he penned these words about Jesus. Because I think what Jesus was saying by presenting himself at that Feast of Tabernacles and saying, I am the light of the world, was this, that in our own struggles through the darkness of the wilderness, Jesus will always be with us to light the way. And I, I want to say this. As modern listeners to this idea that Jesus is the light of the world, I just don't think it has the same impact that it did to the ancients. And the reason why I say that this idea that, oh, Jesus is our light, doesn't really feel all that assuring or heartwarming is the fact that we live in a world that is bathed in light. Light is cheap. Light is ubiquitous. Light is an afterthought. The truth is, we take light for granted. Why? Because we are never without it. We are just one light switch away from the availability of light. And I don't think we understand how precious light was to the ancients and how important it was. I got a taste of that when I went to the Sinai Desert in 2001. And we were going to go climb Mount Sinai at sunrise, and so we slept overnight in the desert. We didn't even have tents. We slept in the open air. And that was a terrifying experience because when the sun went down, it was literally like a blanket of dark just covered everything. I put my hand here. I could not see my hand in front of my face. That's how dark it was. And then there's no shelter covering you, and you hear things in the night. <laughs> you hear things moving, and you have no idea what's out there because <laughs> you cannot see anything. It was literally, in fact, in the middle of the night, this huge bug landed on my face. And I freaked out and I swatted it and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a bat or a bird, but it felt huge and it landed on my face. When you are actually in a place where there's no electricity, when you are in the wilderness, like the Israelites were for 40 years, in the desert night, you realize what darkness is. And you can understand how precious light would have been to the Israelites in that time. I also experienced the power of darkness for in our five years doing missionary work in Africa. Almost 
on a regular basis, if not almost every night. This picture is so dark, you can't even see it, right? That's actually my family sitting there. That was one of the first pictures I took in Africa when we had one of the almost nightly blackouts. And all we had were these kerosene lanterns and candles that barely lit anything. When the power went out, you just kind of said, oh, well, uh, there's nothing to do. <laughs> so you just went to bed. Because in the darkness, you can't do anything. That's the power of darkness. And that's how important light is. And in that setting of wandering the desert for those 40 years, you can imagine what an unbelievable gift this pillar of fire would have been to the Jews. That in the blackness of the desert night, here was this huge torch that represented God's presence among his people. And what the Old Testament says is whenever that fire moved, the Israelites just followed it. And they knew even walking into the darkness of that desert night, as long as this light is with us, we're going to be okay. God is with us. And we have nothing to fear, nothing to be worried about. And I think it's that imagery that Jesus takes hold of. And he says, I am the light of this world. It says, whatever is the confusion, whatever is the losses, whatever is the darkness that surrounds you that makes you feel utterly lost in this life, look to me as your light and cling to me and follow me because wherever I go, wherever my light is, you will never have to experience utter darkness again in your life. And my prayer is that we would cling to that promise of Jesus to be with us in our moments of darkness. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus is telling his disciples, following me doesn't protect you from going through difficult times. You will experience hardship in your life. But know that I have overcome the world and that I will always be with you. Because of that, you know that you will never be alone in the things that you're going through. That you can come to me and ask the things that you need in your life and I will be there for you. Hebrews 13, verse 5 through 6. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you so we say with confidence the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid what can mere mortals do to me I stand before you today to testify that that has been my experience of God in my life Jesus, in those moments when I did feel like I was utterly alone, in those moments when I felt like the darkness was closing in on me, Jesus has always been there for me, always been faithful to me and my family. I have shared this before, and so I don't want to go into all the details of it, but in the five years that we were doing mission work in Africa, in 2007, there was this horrible situation that arose in Kenya where we were missionaries, where there was a rigged election. And the country descended into chaos. Thousands of people lost their life in the violence.
that followed. And our mission agency was telling us, uh, you have to decide for yourself whether you're going to stay in this country or not, but we're telling you that the commercial flights are all leaving now. And if you don't get out now, we can't guarantee your safety out of this country if things keep getting worse. But as a doctor of a hospital filled with patients, how could I leave these patients to die in the hospital without care? And so among us, we all talked and said, none of us are leaving. We're all staying here to the end. But things did get a lot worse. Um, <laughs> I remember one morning, I just opened my window to our backyard. And this little teenage boy walks across our yard, staring me down, holding an AK-47 on his shoulder. And that same day, a guy got shot at the gates of our hospital. And every morning, we were waking up to the sound of gunfire. Ta -ta 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 all day. And then they began burning tires. And you could see the smoke filling the air from these burning tires. And, um, and we had five little kids at that time. And by that point, all the commercial flights were no longer operative. And they said, basically, there's no way out of the country. You're stuck here now. And I remember when the worst of that moment, thinking, have we made the most horrible mistake of our life? Have we threatened the safety of our own children? Are we the worst parents in the world, you know? Um, we kept all of our kids in an inner room in the house so that if a stray bullet flew at our house, that it wouldn't hit any of them. And we turned praise music on really loud so that they couldn't hear the sound of the gunfire and traumatize them. And that was our prayer during that season. God, you have promised to be with us every season of our life. And if ever there was a time when we needed to believe that and know that, it is this moment. Keep our children safe. Keep our families safe. And through the two months of that violence, God kept our families safe through that entire time. And there have been other moments since that time in my life where it's not always as dramatic as that. I, I have shared with you more recently some of the struggles I've been going through with some of my friends leaving ministry and some of the scandals that are happening among pastors. And um, I don't know, I was in this conference call with some counselors just this last week, and there was this discussion among us about just another church scandal that had gone on and how um, the church was protecting the abuser and sort of throwing the victim to the wolves. What a horrible witness to the world that was. And, um, you know, I've been very, I think, um, I've been struggling with a really deep sense of sadness in my heart of being so disappointed at some levels with the church that I serve and I worship. Not being ICC, but the church with a capital C. And even in this moment, all I can do is cling to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the only thing that really anchors me. You are that light that gives life that I can hold on to. And I know for many of you in this room, this has been a really rough few years, hasn't it, with this pandemic. Some of you have gone through and are dealing with even actively 
diagnoses of cancer and other health issues. Some of you I know are struggling with mental health issues. And even being here in the sanctuary with others is a real struggle for you. Some of you are dealing with relationship problems. And I think we can all recognize how terrifying that darkness is that surrounds us. But what Jesus promises us is I am the light of this world. Just follow me. Follow me because it means that your God is always with you and he will help you and he will show you the way. Let's pray.